All right, well, if you would, please go ahead and open up to Second Chronicles chapter 14. And you can see that the slide says chapters 14 through 24. I will tell you, a person who will remain nameless, who has insider info on the bulletin, texted me last night and asked if they should bring their dinner in with them. <laughs> but uh, it won't be necessary. We'll make our way through in, in plenty of time here. Um, I don't do this every week, and so I thought I'd uh, take a little creative license to do something a little bit different. Um, last fall, I was making my way through the Old Testament, and I don't know, like you, that by the time I get into the book of Chronicles, I'm starting to get a little overwhelmed with these kings and now these kings, some of whom are being repeated from the prior books, and it all starts to run together a little bit. So I purposed to have a chart that showed really a timeline of when each of these kings was happening and who the other kings were and the prophets at the time and so forth, and I made reference to that a lot of times. That was really helpful, really helped it come alive to me. So I thought I would kind of go through... Uh, what I found in there, at least in particular, uh, in taking a look at five men in the chronology along the way, uh, three kings and two, a priest and his son. And so that's why the title of this is Five Men, Five Endings, or Five Finishes. How did they, how did they finish their lives? And after that, we'll go to four observations about their finishes or the endings of these five men in light of their lives. And uh, that's, that will be the plan for today. So as we get started, let's have a, a just a quick word of prayer. Well, Father, as we examine these uh, lives that are preserved in your word, Father, I ask for clarity on my part and attentiveness from everyone here and uh, Father, just a, an understanding of your work uh, through this particular period of time that we might see how you use people and events to accomplish your purposes and to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a little bit of background and then we'll jump in. We've been going through in Sunday school, we've been going through the book of Genesis, start at the beginning, we're making our way through, and... God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a, a chosen people, a great nation. Too many descendants to count. Now, if you've been in your Bible for a while, you know that it is a long road from there to the time where there is a, a kingdom under King David um, uh, in the promised land. Now, sin plays into that, as it always does when we um, read these narratives. And David's son, Solomon, unfortunately, was the last to lead a united kingdom. After that, it would break into two kingdoms or two nations. The, the northern ten tribes of Israel would break off and become the nation of Israel with their capital in Samaria. And the southern two would become Judah with their capital in Jerusalem. Now, today, just a few generations into Judah, we're going to be looking at three kings. And Melody, if you would go ahead and put that up. I'm going to wow you with my mediocre PowerPoint skills here. And we'll just leave this up uh, really for the whole rest of the way. But the, if you can see that, the, the kings and the priest and his son who are shaded, that those are the ones that we're going to be concentrating on during this time. Our time frame here is approximately 100 years from beginning to end today. And it ends around 800 B.C., and that's about 200 years before the exile, before Judah is taken into exile by the Babylonians. And I just found it fascinating to look at uh, the people who are a part of God's work during that particular time and to recognize that how he uses 
the means of people and events to accomplish his purposes. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. A couple of definitions, I guess I should say, and you may have heard these many times, but high places. These are elevated places of worship, idol worship, um, most commonly used uh, by the Moabites, or they may have started that practice. So Solomon, for one, uh, at times worshiped at high places with his foreign wives. And the Asherim is another term. Those were associated initially with a Canaanite god. So these, just keep in mind, these are idolatrous. These are, are wicked. Uh, give the idea of wicked things behind these terms. All right? So let's go ahead and jump in. We'll do quite a bit of reading, but then we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap it all up at the end. So verses four, uh, 14, 1 through 5. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. And so we have a really good start with King Asa here. And the Lord is going to bring an adversary against Judah, a, a mighty one, with a million, a million man army. Now let's see how he responds. Jump down to uh, verse 9, and we'll go 9 through 13. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Merashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Merashah. And Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let man not prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army, and they carried away very much plunder. So through dependence on the Lord, they defeat the Ethiopians. So headline so far, we've got good, admirable moves being made by King Asa. He recognizes his dependence on the Lord. And it's paying off. Now in Scripture, or in our own lives often, victory or blessings are often followed by tests. Now Ace is going to get a fair warning of this. Let's jump over and get a little bit of the message he receives in chapter 15 in verses 1, 2, and 7. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And then in verse 7, But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. All right. That's a good message. And we'll come back to it. But let's take a look at what his immediate reaction to that is in verses 8 and 9 and then 12 through 15. 
Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from the Ephraim and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them for Many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. People back then were just like people are now. They go where good things are happening. And then verses 12 through 15. They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Again, very, very good moves by King Asa. He's off to a really good start. And now the other side of it. Judah is going to be threatened by a buildup on the border. We think of like the most recent one may come to mind would be Russia building up on the border of Ukraine. It's a pretty threatening move for the people who are within a land, within a country. It can be a pretty scary time. This nation building up on the border happens to be Israel. So is he going to look to the Lord again? Let's go to chapter 16 and verses 2 and 3. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Asa doesn't look to the Lord. He's going to look to an alliance. And the ally in this case is actually going to remove the threat. Here's the end of his story. Our first, uh, our first personality we'll be taking a look at. Chapter 16, verses 7 through 10. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians, Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? And yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. And then Asa was angry with the seer and he put him in prison. For he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. The end of his story comes in verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. All right? First character, King Asa. What can we say? Strong start. Very good start finished poorly. And what is it that happens to a man who has so much success, so many blessings, demonstrates dependence on the Lord, sees the blessing of that, 
and then later in life reverts back to worldly alliances. I'll leave that one out there and we'll come back to that. All right, let's go down to Jehoshaphat now, Asa's son. Starting in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, we'll see how he starts out. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. He took great pride in the ways of the Lord and again removed the high places in the Asherim from Judah. I'm going to go on to say that he sent teachers of the law throughout the land, and this brought peace. And surprisingly enough, early on, even with this early experience, he's going to make an alliance with King Ahab of Israel by marriage. You can see there his son is going to be Jehoram. His son Jehoram is going to marry Ahab's daughter. And if you have been in the Old Testament a while, you know that her name was Athaliah. And you will remember that they are going to get way more than they bargained for with that marriage. This daughter-in-law is going to come close to destroying the Davidic line to Christ in her own lust for power, even to the extent of destroying her own grandchildren. So King Ahab of Israel wants Jehoshaphat and Judah to join him in a, in a war against Ramoth-Gilead. And Jehoshaphat's going to say, yes, I'll help you with that, but let's get a word from a prophet of the Lord. Ahab gets 400 of his own prophets, and they're all thumbs up. I think you should go and attack, for the Lord will surely give this enemy into your hand. But Jehoshaphat's question comes in 18, chapter 18, verse 6. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Well, there was, and his name was Micaiah. And it is possible that my son-in-law, Kai, is named after this very prophet. Trivia item there. Um, But Ahab, King Ahab, hated this prophet. Here's a mark of an unbeliever. They hate people who proclaim the truth. And uh, Ahab hated also that Micaiah only prophesied bad things about him. So rather than examine if the things were true, it was just easier to go straight to hating him for it. So let's pick up the story on this one. The two kings are together, and they are going to ask Micaiah if they should take on the Aramaeans in Ramoth-Gilead. Now we're going to jump up to 18 in verses 14 through 17. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? Now you're going to notice a little bit of sarcasm in the reply here. He said, go up and succeed for they will be given into your hand. And then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Well, how does that turn out? Let's go over to verses 25 through 27. 
And the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Listen, all you people. So here's the recap. Ahab of Israel wants Jehoshaphat of Judah to go to war with him. Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of God. Micaiah is that prophet. He explains God's plan to defeat Ahab, and what do they do? They go anyway. And what's the result? Ahab is killed. Jehoshaphat gets out, and Jehoshaphat returns to Judah. So now for his part in this, Jehoshaphat is going to be confronted by the prophet Hanani. And he's going to show signs of repentance in that. He's going to appoint righteous judges throughout the land. And when he comes under an imminent attack by Moab, though he's afraid, clearly says that, he turns to the Lord, he proclaims a fast, and he leads the people in seeking the Lord. Let's take a look at his prayer in chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. And he is shaken in his boots when this prayer happens. He's praying. He says, Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do but our eyes are on you. That's that's the prayer of a man with much weight on his shoulders. And if that isn't enough, if you put yourself in his shoes for a minute, just picture the scene here in verse 13. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Now think of the weight on a person looking and seeing all those people, all those families, and here comes the enemy, and you know that they've got more than you have. Well, the Spirit of the Lord would encourage the people through the prophet Jehaziel. And our last pre-battle scene closes in verses 18 and 19, which says that Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord, the Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Pretty intense. What's going to happen? Verses 21 and 22. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. And then in verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. Amazing, amazing story of dependence and the way the Lord worked in that. The later extended results, we can jump down for just two verses, starting in 29. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. 
So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. So you would think then, like his father, this type of experience, that would characterize the rest of his life. He would live out his days in dependence and honoring the Lord. A little bit of a sad ending there. Let's jump up to 32 through 33 and 35. Later on, it says, The high places, however, were not removed. The people had not yet directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. In verse 35, After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, and he acted wickedly in so doing. There's a phrase for this, uh, Asa to Jehoshaphat. It is like father, like son. Follow that same pattern. Now, the short story that follows is that of King Jehoram, the firstborn of Jehoshaphat, chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. Now, when Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure, he killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab did for Ahab's daughter was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Elijah himself is going to warn him. He's going to send him a letter, and he gives a prophecy of Jehoram's ending. He says, Behold, the Lord is going to strike your people, your sons, your wives, and all your possessions with a great calamity, and you will suffer severe sickness a disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the sickness day by day. What a terrible, terrible way to end. His enemies would come and take all his possessions. possessions. And just as Elijah warned, uh, we can see his ending in verses 18 through 20. So after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. Now it came about in the course of time, at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him, like the fire for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. And they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. He departed with no one's regret. So if you take a look at the chart, so far we've got Asa with a strong start and a weak finish. we got Jehoshaphat with a little bit of a, a weak start, a strong middle, and a weak finish. And then we go to Jehoram, who is just evil from beginning to his dreadful ending. Now Jehoram's son Ahaziah succeeds him. He too is evil, has a very short reign. And he's killed, but not before having a son named Joash. Now follow this. Maybe the chart helps. Jehoram's evil wife, if you remember her, Athaliah. Now she's the mother of the dead king, Ahaziah, which makes her the grandmother of Joash, this baby son. And she is a gem. Take a look at chapter 22, verse 10. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. All the royal offspring except for one. Joash is the last one in the line from David to Christ. 
And that sets up our next character, which is Jehoiada the priest. Let's jump down to uh, chapter 22, verses 11 and 12. These names do get confusing. But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah. Now this is Joash, this is his aunt. And stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so she would not put him to death. He was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now you think of the bravery that must have taken for a priest and his wife to shelter this child. Clearly it's God's sovereign protection for him and the means of people to do so. But she was intent on destroying everybody who might be a threat to her and her throne. She isn't going to stay on the throne very long. Uh, and we're ready for yet another uh, pretty dramatic scene. This priest, Jehoiada, is going to organize the military leaders, gather up the Levites, and set up for protection for Joash at the temple, at the king's house, and at the city gate. And it's he was going to have the Levites surround him like the secret service. And if anything was out of place, anyone was out of place, they were to be killed. What Jehoiada planned to do righteously was to take this this boy Joash and install him as the king. So what happens? Chapter 23, verses 10 through 13. He stationed all the people, each man with his weapon in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house around the king. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony and made him king. And Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. And then in verse 15, uh, 12, or let's start with 12. When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came into the house of the Lord to the people. She looked, and behold, the king was standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters were beside the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets, the singers with their musical instruments leading the praise. Then Athaliah tore her clothes and said, Treason, treason. And in verse 15, So they seized her, and when she arrived at the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, they put her to death there. Just an amazing narrative, and one wicked grandma who would rather see her grandson dead and be in power. Now, chapter 23 verses 16 and 17, carries on talking about the priest Jehoiada. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down, and they broke in pieces his altars and his images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altar. And in verse 21, so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword. Just an amazing story. Um, Jehoiada would make sure that the written law was reestablished, and uh, the people had peace in the land. The new king at this time, seven years old. Later, Jehoiada the priest, under Joash's, the king's uh, direction, would carry out orders to gather provisions for reparations to the temple. They did so with diligence and integrity, 
And what we see in chapter 24, see I told you we'd get there. Chapter 24, verses 15 and 16, we see a summary of a life well spent. Now when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. They buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. So in terms of a legacy, what, what more could you ask for than what Jehoiada, what he, he departed with? The last character to take a quick look at, and it's a very short story, is his son, Zechariah. This is not the Zechariah who has a book later on in the Old Testament. He's Jehoiada's son. Now think about what he's seen in his lifetime, seen uh, his father as a godly, consistent, influential on the king, King Joash, for, for decades. His brief story starts in chapter 24, verses 17 through 19. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. So what happened? Jehoiada dies, and immediately the people turned to evil ways. King listened to them. This very king who was saved by Jehoiada and his wife turned that quickly. doesn't take too long to embrace evil. The last part of the story, the last of our reading, is chapter 24, verse 20 through 22. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the moment of the king, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. So Zechariah rightly rebukes the people and the king the king whose life had been spared and his kingdom blessed by God's use of his father, he's going to kill his son, Zechariah. So we got three kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoram, and a priest named Jehoiada, and his son, Zechariah. So some observations on this vast amount of reading we just did. And it's easy to look at, at it as, as we're going through in our own time and kind of follow the story and then move on to the next part. Um, but just want to do a little bit of setup for this first observation. Asa and Jehoshaphat, they both had generally strong lives until the end. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. And he had prayed, O Lord our God, we trust in you, and in your name we've come against this multitude. Jehoshaphat says the Lord was with him. He sought the God of his father. He prayed, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Why would they both make alliances later in life rather than continue to trust? Were they, were they comfortable? 
Were they established and stable? In chapter 17 of Jehoshaphat, it says the Lord established the kingdom in his control. Maybe it's just being established and comfortable. Maybe they wanted to cling to what they had. Maybe they found the process of trusting in what they couldn't see to be exhausting. And think of the emotional energy. The multitude is coming. The Ammonites are coming. The Ethiopians are coming. The Moabites. I still come back to that verse in chapter 20. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. can't imagine being the one responsible. And what could happen? You just think of the weight of that moment. It would be easy to think, I don't want that stress anymore. And maybe those thoughts do come with age. Maybe they come with success. Maybe they come with blessing. So as we look at the lives of the five men, first observation that jumped out at me was two men walked with God most of their lives, yet finished in ungodliness. Two men walked with God most of their lives, yet finished in ungodliness. Many of you have read the book by Jerry Bridges, Respectable Sins. A lot, of, a number of us did it in home groups uh, a few years ago. This is how he defines ungodliness. It's living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. So both Asa and Jehoshaphat had times when they depended on the Lord and also led the people to do so. Asa faced Zerah the Ethiopian and a million men. He called to the Lord in dependence on him, and the Lord routed the Ethiopians. Jehoshaphat had the great multitude. He was afraid, and the Lord set the enemy against themselves. In chapter 16, 12, it says of Asa, yet even in his disease he didn't seek the Lord but the physicians. And Jehoshaphat was rebuked by Eliezer for his alliance with Ahaziah. What might ungodliness look like in our lives? Probably a lot less dramatic. Don't have the multitudes coming against us, at least not for the most part. And I would say, too, if your takeaway from that is, you think about the part about Asa and his feet. If your takeaway is, I just need to make sure I'm praying for all these little decisions in life, I think that's where we actually, we kind of miss the point. If you think about Asa, by the time Han and I confronted his alliance, he was long past not praying, not just praying for specific needs. He'd moved into a pattern of ungodliness. Now, why would I say that? Here's a typical response to truth from both unbelievers and believers who've settled into a pattern of ungodliness. The response to truth is anger. And we see that in chapter 16, verse 10. Then Asa was angry with the seer, which was Hanani, and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him for this. Why was he enraged at him? Because he was calling him out on his sin. And it's an interesting comparison when you think about it. Azariah had come to Asa, and he said, Lord is with you when you're with him. If you seek him, he'll let you find him. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. David says that same thing to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28. Very similar. And we read later about Solomon that his many wives turned his attention to other gods and he wasn't fully devoted to the Lord as his father had been. That's 1 Kings 11. This counsel to seek him first is lifelong. 
But Asa, Jehoshaphat, and ultimately Solomon too, they faded. They all had weak finishes. And it's a sad picture to not finish well. And so as many of us start looking at a little more road behind us than there is in front, as you grow and mature, just some questions to consider. Are you more committed now to proclaiming truth and to serving in the body, to shepherding and to being shepherded, to prayerfully making decisions in light of eternity and the brevity of life on earth? And pray through every key decision. You probably see people, and I do too, making decisions that limit them, limit them in their ability to serve, take more of their time, add more responsibility. It doesn't mean it's wrong in and of itself, but it's certainly something to be considered in light of eternity and in light of godliness. So two men walked with God most of their lives, yet finished in ungodliness. Observation number two is the quality of finish doesn't depend on the length of life. Quality of finish does not depend on the length of life. Two men in our study had short lives. The first was Jehoram, King Jehoram, who's dead at 40. In chapter 21, verse 20, he departed with no one's regret. Though he was in the line to Christ, Matthew skips over his name. He killed his brothers to remove any competition. His oppression of the people intensified results around him and within the nation. He raised high places to worship idols. He ignored Elijah's letter, letter, which warned of coming heartache, which would affect others as well as himself. And he died a horrible death. His bowels came out. And it's interesting when you read about things like that and you look at the world as it is, how the Proverbs can come alive. And one that jumped out at me on this was Proverbs 29.2. When a wicked man rules, people groan. People under... King Jehoram were surely groaning. He had a short life and a terrible finish. And then there's Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. He died young too. His father had sheltered King Joash. He had influenced him toward godliness, the king that is, mentored him, protected him. And Joash's response after the death of Jehoiada was to kill his son. So he died in the Lord's hands. He died proclaiming truth. He had a short life. A hard ending physically, but a glorious ending in the Lord's service. A takeaway there to finish well, walk with the Lord in obedience today. The news flashes, none of us know when the end is going to be. So we'll walk with the Lord today and prioritize Him and His Word. Love what He loves and hate what He hates. So the quality of finish doesn't depend on the length of life. Observation number three, uh, which is also an application, uh, to finish well, heed God's messengers. To finish well, heed God's messengers. Messengers back then, it was the written law, also had prophets. Asa had Azariah come to him who said, stay faithful. He had Hanani who came and rebuked him, and the king imprisoned him. Jehoshaphat had Micaiah. Don't attack Ramoth Gilead. They shouldn't have. He had Jehu who rebuked him, and Jehoshaphat responded well and was blessed. He had Jahazael said, Trust the Lord against the enemy. They did, and they won. Jehoram had Elijah. He ignored him and had a terrible ending. 
That's who they had then. Our messengers now, we have the entire council of God. Lord willing, we have godly pastors, elders, and deacons. We have other believers. We talk about this one a lot, Romans 15, 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are able to admonish one another, to encourage, to warn, or advise. So observation three is to finish well. Heed God's messengers. And finally, observation four, and this one has a little bit of, uh, of nuance to it, but bear with me. Example is powerful, but limited. In terms of influence on others, example is powerful, but it's limited. It's a means that God uses to draw people to himself. And we have many verses that give direct counsel to set godly examples. I think of First uh, Timothy 4.12, Paul writes to Timothy in speech, Conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Deuteronomy 6, 7, we often think of that. The life, lifestyle example, taking the word of God, teaching it to your sons, talking about when you sit in your house, you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you get up, it's a lifestyle. And we are to obey and set example and no means to, no intention to minimize that. However, when you look at the world, and you look at Scripture, there are many godly examples who are followed by those who don't follow their examples. Think of Samuel, the judge of Israel for many years. It says in 1 Samuel 8.3, of his sons, they did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Josiah, 2 Kings 23, says there was no king like him Turn to the Lord with all his heart and let a revival in that land. And of his son, it says in verse 32, in that same chapter, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's more theology there than there is time. And again, I'm not minimizing example and obedience we are to set them. But the encouragement here is to pray. You know, pray for the ones that you care about, that God will draw them, that he will do a work in them. Jehoshaphat followed the example of Asa. He did well, and he finished poorly. Jehoram had a similar example as his father had had, when you think about it. And what did he do? He lived and died evil. Joash had a lifelong example, godly example, in the priest Jehoiada, and he died evil. Zechariah had that same lifelong godly example in the priest Jehoiada, and he finished well before the Lord. So you're in process with people. I am setting an example before them. We purpose to set the best example that we can, and God will use it. Your children are grown. You did your best, but you blew it a lot of times. So welcome to the club. That's, that's most or all of us. But continue to pray fervently and diligently that the Lord will draw them. And I am so encouraged by the many of you who do. That came up in Sunday school this morning. Many family members who we pray for regularly. We just remember John 6:44. no one comes to Christ except the Father draws him, and we should let that be our prayer. So I'm going to give you those four observations again with a subtitle. Two men walked with God most of their lives, yet finished in ungodliness. Stay faithful to the end and finish well. The quality of finish doesn't depend on the length of life. So walk in obedience today. 
To finish well, heed God's messengers, God's word, and his people. An example is powerful but limited. Pray that the Father will draw people to himself. Now, a lot stands out about these men. A lot stands out about what might have been. I think about Asa and Jehoshaphat. What if they had remained faithful to the end? What, or what if Joash had followed Jehoiada instead of turning aside to sin? You've heard me tell this story in the past. I had the privilege with uh, Saturn of being there from five years before that brand had a car up to the very end. And at the very end, there was a um, president of the United Auto Workers Union, Mike Bennett, who had been with the brand all the way along, and he saw how good it could be when management and, and labor were not constantly fighting each other, but were instead trying to work together. And he wanted to save that brand more than anything else in the world. And so he tried to run out when it looked like the end was near and turn it into an employee-owned company. And... Uh, not enough money, not enough time, it, the, the effort failed. Somebody caught up with him years later, and they wrote an article about his reflection on that time. And he told them that all these years later, he still can't sleep at night. He wanders from room to room, and he can't escape this question of what might have been. And we just think about that in terms of these lives. What might have been? And let it not be said of us what might have been if they had just finished their life with a focus on the Lord. <clears throat> Last uh, kind of reflection on it is what I think of Jehoiada and Zechariah as it just comes to my mind is like these guys were real men. Uh, King Jehoram, King Joash, these guys are self-focused, worldly focused. They flame out and, and they're forgotten and they're on their way to everlasting punishment. But Jehoiada and his son Zechariah are real men. And I can't get over Jehoiada, his faithfulness to protect the one in the line to Christ who would ultimately then kill his son. But both of these, this father and son duo, they stood strong to the end. They, they certainly had very different endings. They lived in the trenches in the real world. They were faithful to the end. And how, how sweet for them to have an abundant entrance into God's kingdom. So let me just close with this. Uh, from Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 with regard to finishing well. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's close in prayer. Father, your word tells us that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement to the scriptures, we might have hope. I pray, Father, that each one of us will purpose to follow you in obedience all of our days, that we might finish well in your service. Amen.